You are listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud, conversations about trauma and healing from two women who are doing the work. My name is Jeremiah Jones, and I'm the producer of this podcast. In this episode, Candace and Cher continue the conversation with Candace's story coach, Patria. Listen in as this episode is packed with deep content around bearing the kindness of another and our stories of harm, what it means to experience triangulation, and how someone could end up harming others through violent acts. Hi, Cher and Patria. Hey, Candace. Hi. So good to be with you both again this week. And just going to have Cher join us more in the conversation today. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, uh, please go back and listen to that. I just got to interview my coach, Patria, who I've been working with for about two and a half years now, really on what story work is. And the conversation just went to some places that I feel like can be so helpful to our listeners. If you have been curious about your own story and what story work is. But today I want to ask Patria, as she has just had many years of doing story work and has seen many people shift and heal in the story work that they've done. I'm wondering, Patria, what do you look for when someone's sharing their story as far as themes, you know, maybe not even necessarily bring it up to them, but you're just gathering data. Like, what are you looking for in those stories of harm? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm, I'm generally, so especially at the outset with somebody, I'm gauging how much they can tolerate kindness because it is very, very hard to bear kindness. It's very hard when there's lots of trauma because it, I think of it like a contraction of our body. Like we have, we get so contracted around the ways that we've learned to survive that sometimes kindness comes in and, and it just bounces off, you know? And so that's usually the first thing I'm gauging for is how much of my kindness can you tolerate? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's answering it the theme question necessarily, because you mentioned themes, but that's usually the first thing I'm gauging. And oftentimes that's the work that takes us however long, you know, mm. weeks, months, sometimes longer to just have a break in the soil, to be able to, to experience some measure of kindness mm. in these places. Yeah. Wow. I love that. That is just, it feels so profound, right? Because when we think about kindness, we think, what a simple thing. Right. But yeah. in the context of our stories and, and stories of harm that mostly people have hidden, to, to walk into your office, for example, share a story and be met with kindness. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is very impacting. Yeah. And and we we can't even experience our own... like. The courage that it takes to walk in for care when we are so lost or so needy or so confused is just, I, I can't even, I can't even say how big it is. It's such a courageous thing to reach out from that place of harm and heartache, mm -hmm. hoping like it's, it's this gentle, I mean, uh, radical, it's not gentle at all. It's a radical act of hope. To reach out, mm -hmm. especially when we're buried under layers of yes. shame. Right? Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. Or we have been met with shame. Maybe we have tried to step out before and maybe even the other person had good intentions, but because they hadn't heal, experienced healing in their own stories and their own shame, they, they can't, they have, they look away, maybe not physically, but there's something in them that can't bear our story. Right. And so to encounter someone that can bear our story, if we've never had that happen before, is life-changing. I'm on a, a painting Facebook page. And a lot of times people will come on and they'll say something like, I'm not very good, or I struggle with blah, blah, blah. And it's become really sad for me to see the sometimes 30 or 50 responses of people who think that they are helping by saying, you know, just get over it or, you know, practice more. And I, and I'm thinking about this in the context of when I have shared a story where there's shame or a sense of failure and where someone will lean in and say, I would like to hear more. Can you tell me more? And how profoundly effective that is for us in, in, in healing, because he, so much of healing is us understanding our own story, right? I mean, we, we really don't understand our own stories. So for somebody to say, tell me more, and then to go deeper and deeper, it's, it's, it's really so meaningful. Oh, it's so true. And what just came to my mind when you said that is, I think it's a Dan, I'm almost certain it's Dan Siegel that talks about the primary way to be a good parent is to know your story. And I think we could expand that to, or he doesn't use the word good parent, but the primary way to to bring goodness as a human is to know your story. Mm-hmm. Because then we can, we can look. We don't have to look away. We can look because we have encountered our own stories and it builds an endurance and a desire and an ability and a longing to be present, not Mm -hmm. only for ourselves, but other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say to know your own story, what I thought of, so before I encountered you through the the podcast and then with the Allender Center doing some of their story workshops, I had been in a program that I sat under some counselors for a hundred hours that did narrative focused counseling. And, and there was so much goodness to it. But when I got into story work, as I know it today, what I realized was it, it wasn't just knowing an overview of the story. It was getting into the particularities where themes were present, triangulation, parentification, complicity, you know, all of these themes that you moved in on with me. And I really had to think hard. (laughs) I had an overview of my story, but then you just had questions that brought me to places that I had never even considered. Well, usually we're telling our story like we've been told it. The way oftentimes, speaking of triangulation, if there's triangulation by the mother, say, the way that I tell my story is how my mom tells the story. Mm -hmm. And it's usually through the lenses of my mom's fantasy. 
to dismantle that and to begin to tell the story more truly, we have to engage the triangulation, right? And start to question what's it like to be in the role of your mother's confidant. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that. What happens in your body when you hear your mother tell you about what it's like to experience blah, 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 whatever. So that's a way to engage the theme of triangulation that comes up a lot. I would say in terms of themes that I'm looking for, I'm that's one that I'm always looking for to the degree, I'm almost assuming it's going to be there. If somebody's coming with wanting to do story work, if they know anything about story work that I do, which they usually do, there's I'm look, there's going to be triangulation. And that's usually a primary initial theme that we have to start engaging. Mm-hmm. Can you give just a brief description of what you mean when you say triangulation? Mm-hmm. Triangulation happens when one or both parents can do this experience more life or they get more excitement or more joy, more goodness, more pleasure out of their child, out of you as the child than they did out of their spouse. So something in the relationship feeds them in a way that they enjoy more. And that doesn't mean it's a pretty great or fun relationship. That can also be like a um, really violent relationship Mm -hmm. if a parent longs for violence or their arousal structure, which that's a whole nother theme (laughs) um, is around violence. But triangulation is when a child experiences a closer relationship with one or both parent than the parents have with each other. Yeah, that will be a topic that we will talk more about in other episodes, because like you said, where there's trauma, there's almost always triangulation. And so we we want our listeners to know that we're going to get more into some of those themes. I want to, this is partly my own curiosity here too, mm-hmm. uh, because I have a lot of violence in my childhood story. And, and I'll give you the right to defer or pass on this if you want to. But when you sure. said, if you have a parent who loves violence, wow. And I know this is not everybody's story, but I think it's probably out there a whole lot more than we recognize. Mm-hmm. But can you just talk a little bit more about that? Like what, what could that look like? What could that mean? And why would someone love violence? Mm. Yeah, right. What I'm going to say is not nearly going to be enough to answer that question, because I think there are many facets to it. But what immediately comes to my mind is we all like to feel alive. We all like to feel passion or just in the, the sizzle of energy in our body. We either like it or or we don't, but we have some relationship with it. So we're either coming closer to it or we're pushing it away, right? That kind of aliveness. Some people will ramp up what they do to feel more and more of that aliveness and it will take more and more the path towards violence. And w- what I always think of to try and give an example of what this looks like, because most of us would say, oh my goodness, that's just not true. But if you think back and, and, and I'm, I'm trying not, I'm not making a judgmental statement about people that have read this book or watched this show. But if you think of the, the, the story of 50 shades of gray, and, and I don't know if you know what this story is, but it's the story of a very violent sexual content. 
Mm-hmm. And this story took the world by storm. I mean, it came by storm. And I'm not making any moral statements about it. I'm just saying it's a violent sexual story. And the level of arousal, the level of passion that people had about it, like it was being discussed in churches, it was being discussed over coffee, like this is this was a thing. And it's an example of what I mean by by we we are drawn to these these things. And sometimes people will actually live it out. Fact is stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking and and tell me if this is if this makes sense or if if this is a, at all accurate, but if we have an addiction and so let's just mm-hmm. say that arousal or feeling alive is is the is the desire or the longing, right? If we have an addiction, we can start off and we don't need as much of that particular thing to get our fix. Yes. But then mm-hmm. as time goes on, it takes more to get the high and then the, the low drops out even lower. And so then it takes more to get the high. And is this the progression that loving violence would take where, where a person's desire to feel alive and, and that having to come through painful or you know dysfunctional ways just has to become more and more severe until it's something like violence that that gives them that sense of being alive. I think I can part again, I can partially answer that. I think there's probably way deeper and more clinically accurate answers to this. But I would say that Violence begets violence. Violence begets a love of violence or what we would call an attraction maybe is a better language to use around attraction to violence or a need for violence in order to feel the feeling of aliveness in our body. If you encounter a violent parent, the chances of them having encountered a violent parent are very high. So again, I think there's probably a clinical way to answer your question that I'm probably not the person to answer, but in terms of story work and in terms of themes, if, it, if violence has been done in, and I'm, I'm engaging a story where there's been a high degree of violence, I'm always asking myself the question, not the person, but myself the question, how many generations deep is this? Yeah, It begets, violence begets violence. Yeah. And I just, I know there are people that have been interviewed that are in prison even, and that have shared their stories of how they ended up there and share. It's the very thing that you're talking about and what you're saying, Patria. There's usually some generational stuff. And then there is the idea of they needed more, wanted more. It had the, the fix had to be more to get the same arousal, you know, whatever that looked like. Yeah, I was just thinking of a few interviews that I've heard people in, that ended up in prison over there was no cap on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking as as you were talking and remembering, share your question around that. But I I think too, it takes healing to be able to say that. I mean, so again, I think of that the importance of healing because that action of seeking more and then the fall and leading to, you know, the, the, the bigger cavern that you're falling into and then the seeking more is just, again, it's instinctual. I want to go back to that comment about choices that it's not necessarily making choices to get more. It's, it's this instinctual drive to survive and it feels like survival. 
Mm. And that's, that is even in the cases of violence where there's high degrees of violence, that, that is what's driving. It's usually instinct, unless we talk about psycho psychopathy or, you know, that's, that's not my arena, mm. but those kinds of disorders, but in terms of a, an everyday story that I would encounter, mm. it's instinct that's driving it. It's not choices. Mm-hmm. And it's the only response I would want to re- be sure to clarify in the addiction commentary is it's it's more instinctual than choices. Yeah. And and this is a, you know, we're talking, you know, on one, in one sense, we would say, well, these are extreme cases. And then in another sense, I'll say like, and right. not so unusual, like we know right. that there are so many stories of harm. And I want mm-hmm. to say relating to choices, you also cannot say to that person, just stop being violent. Yes. Yes. Because it's instinctual. That's right. And so, and and put that on anybody's behavior of of something Mm -hmm. that they're doing that is difficult that they might want to change. When Mm -hmm. we are told, well, just stop doing it or just make a choice to, you know, be better or whatever. It, it isn't effective. It, it isn't helpful. It's And you use the word, and I really loved this so much when you said, it is mean to put that on mm. someone. I liked that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for naming that. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that that was something in some of my stories that that was put on me. And I tried damn hard to make sure I could fix things in different ways in different seasons. But oh, man, I'm so thankful I've gotten out of that mindset and that perspective, because I would shudder to be working with people in the way that I do today. And say that to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Right. And even just acknowledging that what we want to believe is normal is not normal. What we put out there, it's not normal to be violent. If normal is what many, many people experience, then there's a lot more normalcy to violence than we would like to imagine. That's what we have to sort of continue to acknowledge within our own story is how much violence is in my story. And then I can hold the stories of violence when they come to me, for an example. This is reality. This is not pretend. There's all these versions of what we want. There's all these fantasy versions of what we want to be normal. But the reality is that most of us have violence somewhere in our story in some way. Yeah. To be able to just say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course that's there. Mm. Yeah. I love that full circle. And Mm -hmm. I want to bring us to a close, but Candace, I, you were just about to respond and I want to make mm. sure that I give you a chance to respond to that. I think I was just agreeing with her that we all have some level of violence. It, it looks different in each of our stories, but when we are first able to bear it, see it, name it, have someone in it with this and then turn towards our own body, our own heart, our own mind with such deep love and compassion for ourselves. It is only then that we can truly respond that way to someone else. Yeah. And I love being in this arena with people who would say harm is normal. 
struggling mm-hmm. is it's not right, but it's normal. Right. It is normal. And so that when we come forward with our deep struggles and our stories of deep harm, that we are met with the love and goodness and kindness of someone who looks at us and says, of course you would struggle with that. Mm-hmm. It's just so good to yeah. be in this space with people like you, Patria, and you, Candice. It's a mm-hmm. beautiful privilege for me. So, yeah. Thank yeah. you again, Patria, for bringing your heart, bringing your wisdom, bringing your time to us, for our listeners. I'm just hopeful that there's going to be so much goodness for those who get to hear your voice. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, what a gift to get to talk of these things and to really spend time on them. So thank you for having me and for doing what you're doing. What a gift. Love you both. Love you too. Love you. Thank you for listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to suggested resources and social media. Like, subscribe, and follow to keep up with our weekly content. And if you don't mind, take a moment to rate and review us. Your feedback is extremely valuable and contributes to the success of this podcast. Music was created by Kayla Paxton, and our sound engineer is Jeremiah Jones of Story LLC. We welcome you to join us for more conversations soon. Take care.